You uppity son of a... Django Unchained, coming up next. Welcome back to Nerd is the New Cool. I'm Justin, and joining me today is my good friend, Mr. Brandon Dennis. How are Hello. you, sir? I'm doing well. Good. Doing well. Uh, I'm really excited. We're here to talk about Django Unchained. This was your idea. This is the 10th anniversary. I know it's uh, you know relatively new, but a lot of things have happened. And it's worth kind of uh, revisiting. So why did you want to talk about it? Uh, so for me, I am a huge Tarantino fan. So all of his films that he's done all have this like... <sighs> Uh, for for a very like simplified version, this grotesque like brutal violence piece to it, and let's, that's let's what you see. Let's on, throw like, the term like gratuitous violence. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, and once you actually start digging into all of his films, there's a lot more depth to it than that. And so, like for the people that initially see like the trailer of Django, for instance, they would see that and they may be turned off by it, but then they miss that entire depth behind everything that he's trying to say through it. Yeah, I think Tarantino is just an absolutely brilliant filmmaker. We're going to get into kind of his background here in a sec, but do you remember the first time you saw this one? Uh, yes. So I did not see it in theaters uh, when it came out. Uh, it took me a couple years to come around to it. Um, so it was one that kind of flew under the radar for me. But then once I was like, shit, this movie came out and I totally missed it. I bought it and uh, immediately watched it. And it's been one of my favorite uh, videos in my collection to go back to and watch all the time. So it was an easy choice to come back to this one. And yeah, I actually did see this one in the theaters. I feel like some of the recent ones, well, like, I mean, for example, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, I didn't I didn't check that one out in the theaters, but I do remember seeing this. And is it bad that you've been, if, if you've seen so many Tarantino movies, you're no longer shocked by any of the things that he's doing <laughs> on screen? Yeah, you uh, become just numb yeah. to all of the violence that is thrown in front of you, but then you recognize the faces and you're like, oh, I I know what you're I you know what you're getting into when you yeah. see the f- the filmmaker's name on there. Right. And so I think that it kind of makes people at ease. I think that typically this subject matter would be I don't know a little bit more tiptoed around and kind of, you know, almost difficult. It's it's it, it's amazing how he makes people laugh at a pretty absolutely horrible time in our country's history. Yeah. And there are scenes where you're laughing, you're like I'm laughing cuz this is just so fucked up. Yeah. That, uh, anyway, it makes it great. So, And, and w- we'll get to that scene that you're talking about, but what's interesting is that he actually used that scene, and when we come back to it, we'll talk about it. Um, but he used that scene to bring people out to get them a, their feel for it. So he did like this uh, small sample research study where as they're writing through all of it and doing the cuts and the edits and everything, they would take that scene, and he almost cut the scene entirely because people weren't getting it that shock and awe factor, they see that and they're like, he did not get the reaction that he was hoping for, which was the busting out laughing and laughter. And people were like shocked and they would look at him like differently. He did not like that and he almost took it out. But then now as you put all the pieces together and you see it, the audience on opening night just ripped it, like not ripped it to shreds, but like they just uh, tore their sides open from laughing so hard. And, 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 I'm glad that he left it in there. Yeah, there there are some uncomfortable scenes though. We'll we'll get to in a little bit. But what I mean, kind of back to the just the main question: of what, what do you think makes this great? I, I got. I think for me, it's like all the little things. 
it's it's like the little tongue-in-cheek mocking funny things are just kind of happening like i'll give you a good example like so near the very beginning of the movie where uh, christoph waltz's character appears and you know he takes out the two um kind of guards mm -hmm. of the and i'm going to use terminology they use throughout the movie okay so like they've got the slaves and they're in the line and he says oh Please hold my shotgun. He just hands the, the, the slave a shotgun, and the slave looks. He looks around like, "What the what what? Am I supposed to be here right hey, now? Am thank I you supposed so much. to be doing he just this?" Takes the shotgun back. Right. Um, uh, the other part that made me laugh. Well, there's a lot of parts that made me laugh, but even even the scene where he goes into town, he guns down that person, and he says, "He's oh, what's the line?" He says, uh, "Oh, get the sheriff, not the marshal." And then he kills. And then he kills the sheriff, and he goes. Now you can get the marshal. <laughs> and it's just those little one-liners yeah. that fucking crack me up. It's great. And I think the other thing that makes it great is that it's a modern-day spaghetti western. Mm -hmm. And what if for those of you that don't know what a spaghetti western is, it's a subgenre of the western genre. So in the 60s and 70s, uh, there were uh, this influx of movies that were shot in Italy. They were produced by Italian um directors and set designers and actors and it all portrayed the american west but it was for the italian demographic so as italy's national export uh is known as spaghetti uh that's where the terminology spaghetti western comes from and there's so much depth in spaghetti westerns too uh so for example um there were two pretty big directors at the time there's sergio leone and Sergio Corbucci. And they both did a lot of amazing movies during this time frame. And what's unique about the genre is that it has this like surrealistic, like dreamlike scenery to it. And it's gorgeous. It's beautiful. And you're like walking through a dream. And, and Django starts that way as well. But this contrast that comes into play from these movies is that then there's just this gratuitous amount of violence that comes into play. So for Tarantino, his inspiration for this was Sergio Corbucci. So Leone was number one, but Corbucci was number two. That was the guy that he was drawn to the most. Corbucci was raised in this fascist Italy and had Nazi influences in there, and he hated it. So as he goes through his movies, if you pay attention in Django, the original Django, in The Great Silence, in um, Campan... Campaneros, um, and just all of these movies that he did. Uh, Minnesota Clay is another one, and we'll get back to that one. Um, the villain is the main character. The villain is the storyteller. They, can, they run the show because fascist Italy, those leaders ran Italy. So he's portraying this through his villains, and it's such an interesting concept because then when you are introduced to the heroes— the only time that you see them truly become the heroes when they stand up to the uh, antagonist of the film. So, and they're so violent, and you know, like I said, this gratuitous violence that's thrown into here um, that the Avengers, per se, or the heroes of these films, taken from a different viewpoint, they could also be the bad guy. And you see that in Django as well. Well, yeah, I don't know. Anti-hero is maybe an overused term, but I feel like the, I mean, who would you say the bad guys, obviously the slavers, essentially like the entire atmosphere, the environment are the bad guys in this one. Yes. Right? Yes. But if you take it from the, the perspective <laughs> of the, um, 
the townspeople in Daughtry that view this man coming into the town and killing their sheriff in cold blood. Dr. King is the bad guy. Right. So it's all this matter of perspective that you could play around with. Uh, And the other thing that's interesting about it is that he gives the protagonist this almost superhero um, talent. So like the fastest in the West or the fastest hand, you know, the quickest shot. And as you go through the film, you learn about the power and then he takes that power away from the anti-hero or Avenger, if you will, and then only then when he faces off against the villain, that's when he truly becomes the hero is that he takes that guy out and that's how you you end up with the hero from it. Uh, but that's also thrown into this. So this whole spaghetti western gratuitous amounts of violence um, is for Corbucci at the time to portray what he was experiencing, experiencing in um, fascist Italy. And I think that's what makes Django great is that Quentin Tarantino comes around full circle and that he, in his mind, he's like, what's the, what's the most grotesque version of American history? And where would that take place? And it's uh, blindingly obvious that it's the antebellum South mm-hmm. in pre-Civil War 1800s. Yeah. Yeah, that's really well spoken. You, you, obviously, you're going to be the expert here today in case anyone <laughs> listening isn't, hadn't been able to tell this before. They, now they now they definitely certainly will. I'm just here to kind of prompt you to say smart things. What's important? Let's talk about kind of the elephant in the room before we move on. As far as talking about uh, bad guys, I think it's important to just quickly n- note the Weinstein Company. I mean, I I don't know if you get that when you watch films now, but when I watch films and anytime like Harvey Weinstein's name comes up or or just the Weinstein Company, I'll, I'm, I immediately like kind of cringe a little bit. Oh yeah, fuck that guy. Okay, like it's so, it's it's awful. Like I hate that his name is on the front of such a masterpiece. Right. So and there's well, several of them that way. There are a lot of those movies because honestly, like they produced a lot of incredible films. They were kind of you know going for these little risky. I guess Tarantino movie is not necessarily a risky film, but anyway. PSA: We do not support the Weinstein Company, <laughs> but we do support <laughs> the man, the myth, the legend, Quentin Tarantino. Yes. So. A little bit of background about Tarantino. Um, he's kind of like a like a savant type person, right? And I don't know if he has a lot of schooling. He actually has said before that he went to he went to films instead of film school. And you can tell. I mean, speaking of like a lot of his influences, like you've already mentioned a couple. Um, do you know where he's from? I do not. He's from Knoxville, Tennessee. I would not have guessed that. Really? I don't, I don't know. I don't know why I wouldn't have. Um, but here's what's interesting. So, so far he's come up with, he, he kind of like, I think at one point he came out and said, I'm doing 10 movies. Mm-hmm. And when he says he's doing 10 movies, what he means is he's, those are the movies he's written and directed at the same time, right? He's got a bunch of other movies that either he wrote or he only directed, mm-hmm. vice versa. Um, he said he's going to be retiring sometime soon, the not too distant future. Currently though, he is writing Kill Bill Volume 3, which yes, I'll take that. Yes, but I don't foresee that being his 10th and final film. I, I agree. Because you've already got one and two that are I, I, paired no, I, together. I totally understand. I, I, I don't even know if he'll be directing it. I think he's just writing it. And I wouldn't be surprised if it's like the, if it's a sequel to the sequel where it's maybe it's the bride being being chased down by the daughter that she let live. Mm-hmm. That's what's speculation. That, that, that That's speculative. The other one that he's writing, kind of circling it back around to what we're talking about today, is a... Screenplay based on the comic Django versus Zorro. That was a big comic, apparently, that he was involved with, and now they're perhaps adapting it to the, the big screen. That's interesting. Yeah. All right. So let's talk about. He is a two-time Oscar-winning uh, 
person, I guess, mm-hmm. for, for screenplays and such. Let's just rattle off his his nine films so far. So he starts with Reservoir Dogs in 92, Pulp Fiction 94, Jackie Brown 97, Kill Bill 2003 and 2004, so both volumes, Death Proof 2000, uh, 2007, Inglorious Bastards 2009, Django, this one in 2012, The Hateful Eight in 2015, and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Do you have a favorite? Besides Django, let's take Django out of the equation. Yes. Um, so I think my favorite out of this is going to be Pulp Fiction. Uh, that was the one that that was my first Tarantino film that I saw. So I'm a yeah. little biased to it, but it was also such a great film. It's kind of hard to vote against Pulp Fiction. I'm just gonna just for the sake of something that maybe I, I don't know if I quote it, but I, it often comes up in conversation, pop culture, obviously recency bias, but um, it's not really that recent. Inglorious Bastards is one that just. Is just so I don't I, I didn't start it didn't start this the uh, the the let's retell history in a different way with a different outcome like b- but around that same time when this that one came out there were like novels like Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter and yeah. things like that I just felt like that they really capitalized on that kind of retelling history but having the same outcome kind of thing yeah or, or even a different different outcome yeah yeah so so anyway so I I, I have a special place in my heart for Inglorious Bastards but. Honestly, there aren't any on this list that I would say, eh, maybe don't waste, waste your time with it because they're all unique in their own yeah. specific way. I think that's what's fun about Tarantino is he has the same filmmaking like strategies, I guess, for each film, but they're all incredibly unique. Yeah, and and that's that's the other thing too is that you know he's inspired by all these genres. Like I just went into that you know spaghetti western piece of it, but you know there there may be a little touch of you know flavoring from all these genres here and there, but everything yeah. is different. Every one of them is different. And if you listen to him talk for even five minutes, you can tell he just fucking is a goddamn student of film. Like, he knows everything about everything, and it's it's incredible. He's incredibly passionate about it, too, and that's, I think, what also makes me excited when I see his name on the credits, mm-hmm. is that it's it's not just something that was just thrown out and done. Because sometimes, you know, you, you can see these studios have 10 or 12 movies that they'll produce a year, and maybe two of them would be blockbusters your June release and your December release. Mm-hmm. But everything else is just to fill the fill the void. None of his movies fill the void. Right. <laughs> That's very true. Well, I actually like him as an actor, too. Uh, I, the first movie I remember seeing him in was actually Four Rooms. It was like, that was like part three. Have you seen Four Rooms? I have not. Other Justin, have you seen Four Rooms? What the fuck? I'm in a room without <laughs> someone who's seen Four Rooms. It's incredible. Tim Roth, maybe his first movie that I remember seeing him in, it, he's he's a bell boy, bell man at a hotel, and there's like three mini stories that happen like at like an, in one evening. So like one of them is with Antonio Banderas, and he has to like watch their kids. And this one I'm talking about was a Django, or not with Django, with Quentin Tarantino. It's also got Bruce Willis in it. Um, anywho, fucking you do go watch Four Rooms. <laughs> it's it, Justin's giving us the, the the head nod. It's it's definitely. It's a good one to watch. Um, so is that where he got his cast from for all the rest of his movies? It kind of seems like <laughs> it. I mean, really, like there are a lot of people that he's drawn. And I think I'm pretty sure he wrote Four Rooms. I don't think he directed it. Hmm. Um, and then, of course, from Dust Till Dawn. He's incredible. He's really good in that. And then, obviously, he makes an appearance in Reservoir Dogs. So and and, you know, and Pulp Fiction as well. A couple other films. But yeah. anyway, before we kind of get into the categories, what are your thoughts on a Christmas release for a film like this? Uh, well, I was I think... surprised to read that it came out in Christmas. <laughs> I forgot that was the timing. Yeah, you mentioned June and December releases. I get it from like a money perspective, 
but what an oddly themed film to come out Christmas time. Go. Yeah, so I think the red and white that you see throughout this entire film connects back to that Christmas theme. I think oh. that's the only connection that we have to it being a Christmas movie. <laughs> yeah. Uh, kind of like the Die Hard uh, film. It but, came... well, but at least that takes place during... Y- yes. Listen, yes. I, I am not going to have this argument again. Die Hard is a fucking Christmas movie. But this is not a Christmas movie. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we, we agree. Yes, I agree with that. Uh, but, but to my point, it's just that it's the red and white. I think that's the only thing. And you see a lot of it. A yeah. lot of the red and the white. Uh, but I think it's more so because... He didn't want to wait until the June blockbuster time frame for, uh, what, twenty or 2013. And I don't think he had it finished before June of 2012. So I think that was the time frame. That well, and I guess also if you're like it. making a film that you kind of assume is going to be nominated for some awards during award season, that's kind of a good time to... I'm just kind of thinking about that like right now. It's probably probably makes sense. Yeah. But the, again, no, but, but it like, I mean, it came out on Christmas Day. <laughs> like that's <laughs> like, it's not as if it came out Christmas time. December twenty fifth, twenty twelve is when it when it released. I think it's a great family tradition it's movie. It's a bold strategy, Cotton. It worked out pretty well, I guess. <laughs> it did work out. It did work out. All right. So into the categories. So category one, let's do a real quick summary. Again, if you haven't seen this before, check it out. But here's here's the IMDB description. With the help of a German bounty hunter, a freed slave sets out to rescue his wife from a brutal plantation owner in Mississippi. As I mentioned, December twenty fifth, twenty twelve was the debut, and it has a runtime of two hours and 45 minutes. I wrote that after I had rewatched it again for the umpteenth time. It did not feel like two hours and 45 minutes. Some movies that are longer, like, yeah, they could have cut some stuff out. Like it, it, there were maybe some slower parts, but it did not. I mean, that's a long, that's almost three hours. That's a long, it's a long runtime. And, and to that point, you'd mention it, you know, we'll, we'll mention it a little bit later, but, um, he was going to make it longer. He was actually going to have an extended version of that, uh, but it uh, didn't. It, it it didn't make the cut. Uh, there was some casting issues that kind of problem, you know, kind of solved that problem. But it was supposed to be longer, and I think that seeing that version of it would have been would have wouldn't have added to it being like, oh my gosh, this is a you know four hour movie now. It would have been like, oh, that movie was four hours. I didn't realize that. Yeah, there there were definitely some scenes that were we'll, we'll talk about later on that were certainly cut short. That, I, that I'm I'm not I'm pretty happy about. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, as far as the BS rankings are concerned, the IMDb score is an 8.4. And we, Rotten Tomatoes came in at 87% uh, for the critics, and the audience score was at 92%. So a pretty popular movie across all of the uh, audiences out there. Yeah, and that, that's not... I don't think anyone would be surprised by that. No. Next category, Spielberg Award for Directing. So as we mentioned, Quentin Tarantino directed this. Here are the things that he's directed... I'm going to go kind of in reverse order. So the most recent thing he directed was Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And then you kind of heard the rest of these. But what I was in, what I for, kind of forgot, he also directed Grindhouse in 2007. He, direct, he directed a few episodes of CSI <laughs> in 2005. What a weird, like, you know, departure from uh, what he'd been doing. He also was a special guest director for Sin City. And uh, as I mentioned, he did direct Four Rooms, which uh, he actually directed one of the segments. The segment was called The Man from Hollywood, which came out in 95. He also directed an episode of ER uh, into 1995. He was all over the place. The episode called Motherhood, in case you're wondering if you want to go check that out. So, uh, yeah, he's got a lot of uh, – of of all of these directing – all of his directing credits besides maybe ER and CSI, what are your favorites or what's your favorite? Uh, my favorite, uh, I'm going to go back to Pulp Fiction 
on that right, one. You got to give us another answer besides but fiction. But the <laughs> other one that I will go with is Inglorious Bastards. So that was my that was my third. Okay. So reason being yeah. is because I love the Hans Laden uh, character and the whole bit between the you know. Nazis being outsmarted and chasing around things. Like, I love that aspect of it. I'll say Kill Bill because I think that the way that he goes about, uh, there's a lot of different, like, angles and cuts and then use of kind of either black and white, back to color, kind of almost tells multiple layers of stories throughout. Mm-hmm. So I think, I think directing-wise, I think Kill Bill's a freaking masterpiece, both volumes, honestly. But I, I think I like, I personally like the first volume the best. The honorable mention that I will say for that, though, is the Grindhouse Death Proof double feature that he mm-hmm. did. The back and forth between kind of going through all of that and uh, everything that he did with the shots and the angles and the color and the lighting and all of that was great in that too. I mean, that's, and I don't want to say that's different. I mean, that's probably similar to Kill Bill, but there's a lot more. That's like a flat out action film, Mm -hmm. films, I guess. Whereas a couple of these other ones are, there are action scenes, but it's kind of telling a more grand story. The, ironically, the next category is called the Tarantino Award for Writing. So, so before we dive into this yes. one, I do have a story. Okay. Uh, what is hilarious and really funny is that uh, this was probably seven or eight years ago. Uh, I was a Webster. I am a Webster University alum, and uh, they had a speaker series. And BJ Novak actually came in, and he was uh, he did like a comedy bit, and then kind of talked to the audience for a little bit. And one of the stories that, uh, or one of the questions that was asked, it was you know what was your most memorable moment with. Um, any of your acting pieces or anything that you've done. And the story that he told is that uh, was uh, from Inglorious Bastards. So in that film, the whole film was shot in Berlin, right? And so as they go there, they're staying in Berlin and in Germany. And this is present day, but it's taking place during World War II, right? There is a bar called Tarantino's in Berlin. I don't know if it's still open, but at the time it, it was. And the entire cast knew about this. And every day they would, you know, kind of pressure Quentin and say, hey, let's go there. Let's go check it out. Let's go check it out. Uh, But basically what it was, the concept of this bar was it was a restaurant that you go to and the entire interior was covered with all of Tarantino's film posters and all of the TVs would play a different Tarantino movie. So you could have Pulp Fiction and Reservoir Dogs and all of these movies playing at the same time. So what was hilarious is that after the uh, the final day of shooting of Inglorious Bastards, Quentin you know brings the cast and he's like, all right, let's go to Tarantino's. And from the perspective of B.J. Novak, he's explaining this as it's essentially if you know you're a Michael Jordan fan and you have all of these posters of Michael Jordan in your room, and Michael Jordan walks into your room, you're embarrassed, right? <laughs> Anybody would be embarrassed, like, oh, I can't, you know, I can't believe you you see all this. Like, I'm I'm bashful, I'm shy, and all this. But he's like, the Germans were so fucking cool. <laughs> that they pretended not to recognize Quentin Tarantino in Tarantino's bar. And he had nothing to do with this. Like, he just, you know, knows of the bar. So they go in there and they just totally ignored him. But it was just such a, a, a hilarious story to hear firsthand from BJ Novak that the whole cast and crew of Inglorious Bastards went to Tarantino's and the Germans were just like, oh, who, who the fuck is this guy? I, I've never seen this guy before in my life. I would have totally fanboyed over him. I, I mean, I got to. I gotta say, I think that would eh, good. Good on the Germans. Yeah, yeah, it, it it's fun. It, it's fun. It, it was really funny. But yeah, yeah. Well, so more about Tarantino, the category for writing. So I'm just gonna throw the few ones out that I haven't listed yet that he did write that he didn't direct. He also wrote Jackie Brown. Did I mention that one already? I don't think I mentioned I don't that think one so. already. No, uh, maybe I did. I did. I actually did. Oh Sorry, yeah, you just did. kidding. Um, he <laughs> he wrote. Let's see. From Dust Till Dawn. 
That was a screenplay that he didn't direct. He also wrote Natural Born Killers, which uh, is a very, very favorite of mine. Really fucked up. He also wrote True Romance, which obviously is a classic. I think that's kind of where people really kind of... I mean, that was after Reservoir Dogs in 93. But um, anyway, what's your favorite of, of, of his writing credits? My favorite uh, from the writing credits, I'll, I'll pick a different one here and go with Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Uh, I like this one because of the story that you follow through that whole um, sequence with Brad Pitt and DiCaprio, the stuntman and the actor, the whole back and forth bet- between that. But then you seeing the, the kind of the behind the scenes of what may or may not have actually happened. It may be some history twerk, uh, tweaking that um, he kind of played with there too, but you know, kind of seeing uh, the sub story being about Charles Manson and his whole culty thing being just a subcategory of this film was just funny to me. So yeah. I think that one is the writing for me for the, the pick. Yeah, and again, an example of like retelling history, but with a completely different ending, <laughs> which I think is fun. <laughs> I personally, I'm going to say, I'm going to say True Romance. I, I was actually surprised. I mean, I guess I, whenever I found this out, knowing that he didn't direct it, I was shocked by that because it just seems like a Tarantino film. And obviously it's written by him, so that's why it's got that vibe to it. But... Awesome writing for that one. Okay, next category. Now we have to make some choices. The Tom Hanks Best Leading Role category. We got Jamie Foxx, who plays Django, and Christoph Waltz, who plays Dr. King Schultz. Who's your favorite? This was so tough to pick between the two because the two do such an amazing job for it. And Mm -hmm. Tarantino wrote this character for (laughs) Christoph Waltz, which is great. Uh, But I think I'm going to go with Django just because of the story uh, that, you know, Waltz tells of uh, Siegfried and Brumhilde mm-hmm. and Django perfectly encompassing that character in that story. So he's playing a, a character in a story in a movie about this character in the story. Uh, but I think Django just did such a great job, or Jamie Foxx, excuse me, did such a great job of portraying Django and the storyline and everything that, you know, you have this vengeful story. And in the end, he still gets that vengeance it's not like a you're led up to believe and it almost happens that way you're he almost gets to the end and then you know the whole sequence of being captured and running out of bullets and mm-hmm. all of that but then you know he gets it at the end he's just like yeah you got it it's really easy to to be on his side from the get-go and kind of see his growth but having said that i, I have to pick christoph waltz and i will always pick christoph waltz against anybody in anything because he is just absolutely incredible he is he is and like i said it's it's a close it's a close you can't it's it's hard to portray i know this isn't the same movie but i i can't think of another actor that you could watch on screen playing a nazi and like be like this guy's kind of i kind of like this guy like he's so (laughs) like he's so likable as a fucking nazi (laughs) and now in this instance he gets to be a kind of a good guy again again i I know anti-hero gets thrown away thrown around a lot but essentially he's a murderer he is but he's doing it for what seemingly are the right right reasons (laughs) you're like yeah yeah kill them all and he's just he's got such a a a pure purpose throughout the whole film too which is which is nice to see yeah but okay well we can split it next category the other four jacksons so best secondary character and there are actually a lot of secondary characters. I kind of picked and narrowed it down based on a little bit of screen time. Um, so we got Leo plays Calvin, Candy. Carrie Washington plays Broomhilda, or Hildy, which I, I really did like. 
uh, Von Schaft. Sam Jackson, who plays Steven. Walter Goggins plays Billy Crash. Don Johnson plays Big Daddy. And, uh, you know, I'm going to move this guy to the next category. So those those top five, who, who do you think are the uh, – who's your favorite secondary character? So it was, again, a close race because the cast for this is just incredible. So everybody yeah. in here does a great job with any piece that they're given. Uh, but I think for this one, it's going to be Candy, Mr. Mister Candyland for me because it, it has to be because, again, you know, with the spaghetti western archetype – the villain controls the story. Now, again, you've got Big Daddy Johnson that, you know, or, uh, Big Daddy is by Don Johnson. By, yeah. by Don Johnson. Uh, he is also along that same line, and the Brittle Brothers are along that same line of the villains. So you almost have three of the same villain, but Candy is just the epitome of what was absolutely wrong during the time frame of that Annabelle himself. He's amazing, and like he's got now he's he's become meme famous or gif famous, right? Yeah, same thing. Uh, yeah, it's definitely Leo as Calvin Candy. He wins hands down. Who was your second? Who was your close second? I, I like didn't even think of somebody else who could maybe be win that category. Uh, Samuel Jackson as Stephen, because yeah. of how hilarious he was able to portray the worst slave type that there was. Right. Because he, and even in the film, Django calls him out for that, where it's like, you've seen 7,000, 8,000, 9,999 slaves come through this plantation, and you've done nothing to help them. Mm -hmm. In fact, you've benefited from them being here. So he's also a, a portrayal of what was also wrong with that time frame. You know, I, I'm going to look out for myself and only care about myself. Yeah, he does suck as a character. He pulls it off very well. Okay, all right, that's fair. Shout out to Walter Goggins, though. I fucking <laughs> I, I love Walter Goggins. Yes, he's. I mean, he's great in this movie, but I just like him in general, especially in like Justified. Mm -hmm. He's and, he, and, that, and, and, and in the Hateful Eight. And he's in the Hateful Eight. And I was gonna say the other thing that he's in. Um, he's in. Uh, oh shit, Sons of Anarchy too. Yeah, and he's incredible in that. Anyway, so shout out to my boy Walter Goggins. Leo wins it though. Backup singers, next category. So these are some deep cut characters. So. Pretty big actress here, but maybe had smaller roles. So Bruce Dern plays a uh, old man. I don't know how to pronounce it. Karukin. Karukin. Yeah. Karukin. James Remar, who plays Butch. If you don't know who Butch is, um, he's basically the private investigator guy that has a little rounded cap on. Right. And when you know him most from Dexter, he plays Dexter's uh, dad. Right. Mm. Pretty sure it's Dexter's dad. Yeah. Yes. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty sure. Uh, Tom Savini plays a tracker and I know Tom Savini. I had to put his name on there even though most people have no fucking clue what I'm talking about. <laughs> he plays Sex Machine from Dust Till Dawn. Shout out to Lambert. He likes that character. Uh, MC, MC Ganey plays Big John Brittle. He's kind of like the main bad guy. I would say second in command bad guy from Lost. Like the bigger guy with the, with the mustache. Mm -hmm. Jonah Hill plays and this is his title, Baghead number two. <laughs> Uh, he actually had a bigger role we'll, we'll get to in a sec. And then finally, Robert Carradine makes an appearance as the tracker. So who you got? Who's your favorite of these of these six? Uh, I had Jonah Hill circled as backhead number two just because it was such a hilarious portrayal. And that scene uh, was so hilarious uh, that you, as you see it, you, you can't help but laugh. And you can't laugh at that if you don't have the acting behind that right. to make it seem even more ridiculous than it is. 
I mean, so yeah, Jonah Hill definitely wins this category. We're just agreeing on everything. Uh, that was actually one of the things, another thing I had in there is for little things that make this movie amazing. And I think at one point they're, they're rap, rip, ripping the bags off their heads. And like, I can't breathe. I can't see in this thing. And the guy gets mad. Sorry, I, my wife and I took all this time making these bags. <laughs> like he's, he's self-pitying himself. And then he for rides off. He's so pissed. He quits. Yeah. <laughs> uh, here's a fun fact, though. So that actually is not, they're not the, that's not the KKK. That group is called the Regulators. Apparently they were a, they're called, they're, quote, they're quoted as the spiritual forebears of the post-Civil War KKK, which was formed in 1865. So it's kind of like a pre, uh. so that's kind of maybe why they're not wearing their, their, their hoods or whatever it is. Yeah. So that's kind of, they're spo- that's who they're supposed to represent. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. So we have it. We've got, uh, we've got uh, Jonah Hill. Um, next category, which is the John Williams category for music. So we got, we got to spend a little bit of time talking about a couple people involved with this film. So we got Ennio Morricone, who is the composer. He won an Academy Award for the Eightful Eight and then goes and does the music for, for this one as well. Um, let's talk about the main theme for Django. This was composed by Louis uh, Bakalov. So, I mean, do you want to elaborate on this? Or do you want me to get into it? I can get into it. You can get into it. Okay, you, cool. You go. So... He, here, here's what he's saying. About, so Tarantino has some things. So I'm going to do a couple quotes. He says, it's sung. So he's kind of laughing that it's actually sung. He says, quote, in quasi-Elvish style by Rocky Roberts, this was the actual title track to the original 1966 movie, Django. Uh, he says, I've always loved this song. I think it's fantastic. Not only that Django was so popular around the world, he's apparently heard Japanese versions of the song, Italian versions of the song, even Greek versions of the song. Um, because it was it was played all over. And then he says, when I came up with the idea to do Django Unchained, I knew it was imperative that I open up with this song as a big opening credit sequence. And it's just the Django, right? Uh, because basically this movie is done in the style, as you mentioned earlier, of a spaghetti western. And any spaghetti western worth its salt has a big opening credit sequence. And basically says if, he, if it doesn't have one of those, he doesn't even want to see it. So it, it really does like set the stage for what's going to be a ridiculous spaghetti western. Yes. Uh, going in a little bit further, as you progress through the film, you have the music that is playing right alongside it. And there's a lot of symbolism with that too. So the after the Django song, there's a couple of other smaller songs that are played in there. Um, but the next one that really stood out to me was His Name Was King, which describes to a T Dr. King Schultz um, as he's you know riding off after you first... Uh, have that first interaction with him with the slave traders and that he's writing off and that tooth is bobbling on the top of his dentist cart. Mm. That's when you hear his name was King. And it was like, Oh, that mm-hmm. that's great. And as Tarantino would sprinkle in a little more with the spaghetti Westerns, there was a spaghetti Western named or titled, uh, where was I at here? Uh, his name was King, <laughs> uh, which was great. Uh, after that, you've got uh, freedom song. So Django is looking for his freedom by accompanying Dr. King, and it will take everything he has to earn, uh, even his savior, Dr. King, passing uh, to achieve that freedom. So the lyrics in the song are talking about a man that's looking for his freedom and will do whatever it takes to get to that point. So you know you have the whole plot line, setting the plot line and foreshadowing what's going to happen. And it takes a lot out of Django to go through this entire film to get there. So that's a great piece of the song. Uh, then after he uh, 
has the exchange in Daughtry and that that scene. Uh, with that, you've got I've got a name where uh, Dr. King takes him to get a costume so that they can go to uh, plantation to plantation across Tennessee to find the Brittle Brothers. But now he's got a name, he's got a purpose, he's got uh, you know this uh, identity to him. And which was the blue boy suit, which was hilarious, and that's what he picked out. Hmm. Um, but he carries his name with him and carries the idea that he is Siegfried from the Broom Hilda story, and he's going to go there free, so meaning he's going to go to Candyland and he's going to set his wife free, and all that's going to be great. The next song that comes in as he's strolling into Candyland, you've got 100 Black Coffins. Uh, Django is heading into Hell, one of the three levels of Hell uh, in can- is Candyland. And that song plays out that Django will need 100 black coffins, not for the black slaves, but for the bad men that will not survive the night. Again, foreshadowing what is to come and what Django is going to do to save Broomhilda. And then the end of the film, you hear Trinity uh, or Titoli um, from They Call Me Trinity, which was about a gunslinger who earns a reputation as the fastest gun in the West. And King Dr. King is quoted in the film saying that he will be the fast he will be known as the fastest gun in the South. So a little bit of more of that connection between all of that. I love the thought process that Tarantino puts into how he incorporates music and you know even like sound effects. Uh, I, we were talking about before we started kind of how how it makes me think of the thought that like John Williams puts into like Star Wars and how everyone has like a particular theme song. Mm-hmm. Uh, kind of a little bit of that, but maybe not just in, you know, just, just the music also, like you said, in the lyrics. Yeah. I mean, you know, he's not writing, you know, he doesn't have somebody writing all of the music. There's other songs in there. Like he throws in a Jim Croce song, Yeah, but it fits so well into the storyline that you, it doesn't make sense to have anything else, but I've got a name playing and it's just lighthearted, upbeat, Mm -hmm. you know, I'm gonna, you know, I've got a purpose. I've got an identity. So all right, next category. So scenes to nerd out on. I was able to get this down to 10 scenes despite it being almost a three-hour movie. So please add in more. And I kind of made these like pretty broad scenes. So scene one is just the first, basically the release of Django. Like, mm-hmm. you know, him getting King getting him out and killing the, the uh, what do we call those guys? Um, slave traders. Like the sl- yeah, okay, all right. Yeah, so they were, I believe, purchased and being moved to the next plantation. Mm-hmm. as King Schultz finds them. Right. Uh, I've got the saloon, so with the sheriff and with the marshal. Mm-hmm. That's the next kind of big big set piece. Got Big Daddy's house and the whole conflict there. And, that, and that's more than one scene, obviously, but it's them showing up till eventually Django just starts gunning those guys down. Then that kind of gets us into the next kind of group of scenes, which we already talked about a second ago, Um with all the guys gathered and got the bags on their the heads. The raid and, scene, yeah. Yeah, which leads to Big Daddy being killed. Mm-hmm. One scene that is not my favorite scene is the, and this is their words, the Mandingo fight. Do not like that scene at all, but it is a scene. Yeah. I also do not like the <laughs> the dog killing of the of the, the the guy who's too afraid to fight. Oh, like, yes. He won't fight anymore. Yeah. And then that the, I, I it is not a favorite. Scene Sorry, you said dog killing, and I'm like, I don't remember them oh, killing a dog. Sorry, but the yes, scene where the where dog he is, is killed killing, by the dogs. Yes. yes, that's that's awful. It's, it's uh, those two scenes are just rough to watch. It's almost like watching him through like my hand, like my fingers. Mm-hmm. Um, but a good scene I did like was when Calvin loses it and basically figures out what's going on and wants his full twelve full twelve thousand. Yeah, he slams his hand. And, on the table and, and and what's what's great about that scene too is that you have and what it. 
just so much unappreciation for Steven, but he saves Calvin Candy from making a, a mistake there. He was the one that put all the connected all the dots. So kudos to Steven right. uh, in, from Steven's perspective uh, for figuring all that out and then making Schultz and uh, Django pay and not get out of there as easily as they thought they were going to. Yeah, I guess we should give Steven the credit there. Then just the big showdown, King gets killed and, and basically Django kills a lot of men, but then eventually gets, uh, gets captured. Mm -hmm. I had the Django escape. And then the final scene I had was Django coming back and gunning down Steven and the gang and riding off happily ever after. Yes. So those are the scenes. I, so really, I only have eight scenes. Do you have any more that were you want to go into? Uh, the one that, that I, uh, I do want to mention is the uh, storytelling scene of the Brumhilda story, the Siegfried and Brumhilda, because without that scene, you don't understand as much about what is happening, and then you miss out on the other key symbolism pieces uh, of the three stages of hell that um, Brumhilda's father makes Siegfried go through to save her, and that you see those in real time as the movie progresses, where you see uh, some of that. And I think that there they were going to more directly explain that and put that in there, but they cut it short a little bit uh, because, again, you they took out that whole section where um, Jonah Hill's character was going to be the um, guy that brought Broomhilda from the slave uh, purchasing area in Mississippi down to Candyland, and that was going to be a, an aspect of it, which I think was going to show how all of that happened. Um, but actually hearing that story, and then you understand, okay, that's that's the significance of Broomhilda von Schaff's name in this, in mm -hmm. this film, and then, again, foreshadowing what Django has to go through. So is that your favorite? Uh, I wouldn't say that was my favorite. I think my favorite scene is the well. Oh, and the other scene that I want to mention, oh, yeah, and okay. this this took place on um, Big Daddy's plantation, uh, so which uh, kind of encompassing that whole thing. Um, but just the the back and forth between Schultz and Django, where he's shooting the final brittle brother, mm -hmm. and he's like. You're sure that's him? Yeah, I'm sure. You're positive. No. No, you're not positive? No, I don't know what positive means. <laughs> and he's yeah. like, no, I, well, what does positive mean? Well, positive mean, and as the Brittle Brothers riding away, <laughs> and he's like, I don't know what positive means. Well, positive means you're sure. Then, yeah, I'm sure. Okay. And then he shoots him. He's like, I'm positive he's dead. Like, that's <laughs> such a great back and forth piece. But again, yeah. you get that little piece of a smack in the face of, of, of a remembrance of, Django doesn't have the education that Schultz does. He's he's. It's not that he's inept. It's not that he's inadequate. But he just was never given that. So as you go through that movie, there's several times where Schultz will say something, and you hear Django say what that is, grammatically incorrect. And then it's like, oh yeah, I, mm -hmm. I forgot he was a slave at the beginning of this film. He's not this like, you know. I mean, he is like this big like power guy that is coming in and going to be the Avenger. But you're constantly reminded that to where it's like, oh, yeah, I, I forgot. And then it makes you root for him that much more. I think for me, my favorite scene um, was the raid scene. I think that was just, well. The, what scene? The, the raid scene with the. Oh, the, the raid scene. Okay. Yeah. So the our prior to the raid scene where the, that was the funniest and the, the, the most funny scene for me. But my favorite scene, it, it, I, I'm, I'm torn between the two. But the other one was the explanation of old Ben 
with Candyland or with Calvin Candy, and he has the skull there and goes through this entire like dichotomy of the uh, the anatomy of the skull and how the slaves were uh, you know a lesser people, and it was just like such a brainwashed viewpoint, but he was so confident in it that it was just like wow, that's that's incredible uh, that they that that was the way that they thought and that mm-hmm. was the way that they you know lived their life. So I think from like uh, a movie overall perspective, that was my favorite scene because of how quickly he went from zero to 100 and lost it. But as uh, my favorite scene to to go back to and quote and reference would be the baghead pre-raid scene. Oh, yeah, that's that's pretty pretty amazing. I think anything on at, at Big Daddy's house just cracks me up. Oh, yeah. Don Johnson just constantly being duped. Everyone's getting gunned down. He just doesn't know what the hell's going on. I think just from like a strictly like rewatchable perspective, I think that is the best like section of the film. Yeah. I also like it when the good guys, you know, come out victorious. Yes. Um, okay. Next category. The Heath Ledger Award for Scene Stealing. I got three nominees. Really, there's only one nominee, but I got Christoph Waltz, Leo, and I put Don Johnson on there because I do like him. He's funny. You got anybody anybody else to nominee? So nominate? Uh, for a scene stealer perspective, uh, I don't have the the person specifically, but I think just like the character's role, I have two. So I have um, Stephen and Willard, mm-hmm. just because of the. Um, so Willard is the uh, husband of the wife that made all of the bags for them. So him just losing it and you know quitting the yeah. the. Um, what was it? What'd you say? The regulators, uh-huh. uh, quitting the regulators and being offended by, by these people for the purpose that they're there. And he's offended was hilarious and like took that and ran with it. Uh, and then Steven, when candy is shot. Mm. So yeah. his, his reaction to him seeing that and just that raw emotion coming out and just him like belting out and screaming. I think those were my two, but I'll let you explain yours too. I think Waltz wins again. I think whenever he's on, <laughs> when he's on screen with any other character in the film, I am completely glued to what he's doing. I, I, that's that's my definition of the scene stealer. I think those are good moments. Man, Christoph Waltz though, he just I, comes correct. I almost it almost felt too easy. Oh, it's too, it is. That's why it's the right answer. <laughs> <laughs> if it's too easy, it's because it's obvious. Yes. Yes. All right. Next category: Dante's Peak. So is this kind of the peak of their of their career or whatever? So I, kind of a couple, some of these are pretty easy. So Kerry Washington, no, it's got to be like scandal, right? Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely, right. Jamie Fox, no, I think it's probably Ray. Yep, he, he won I an Academy Ray Award for that. Well. Christoph Waltz is maybe a little bit more difficult. Um, so he, first of all, he's won Oscars. He actually won. Best performance by an actor in a supporting role for this. And he, he here's a little fun fact. He concluded his Oscar acceptance speech by saying, uh, sorry, couldn't resist, which obviously is the line that he says right before he gets gunned down. Yes. And, um, he also won the same award, though, for Inglorious Bastards in 2009. So he's got two. So it's kind of tough, maybe. Yeah. Um, here's a fun fact. At one hour, six minutes, because I was kind of shocked by the, that he was given best supporting actor. In this film, at one hour six minutes and seventeen seconds, Christoph Waltz's performance in this movie is the longest ever to win an Academy Award for Best Supporting in his role. Uh, and actually, uh, I, can, I can never pronounce his name correctly. Uh, Mahershala, Mahershala Ali in Green Book, 
at one hour, six minutes, and 38 seconds actually surpassed that when he won Best Supporting in 2018. Hmm. But having said that, that's a lot of screen time to get Best Supporting. Like, <laughs> yeah. I, I, don't, I don't know why he wasn't nominated for Best Actor. I mean, he's in half the movie. Yeah. Anyway, so do you, what do you think his peak is? This or It's got to be this or Inglorious Bastards, right? Yeah, um, I think it's just because the way that, like you, like we already mentioned, he makes a Nazi lovable, yeah. like the acting in that. So I think it's Hans uh, Landa that wins. Uh, that that was his peak. Totally agree. But again, Tarantino wrote this role specifically for him. Yeah, but but that movie is that's his breakout. It's like look at this. He's fucking the new guy now. Everything else he's in from that from now on, like he's just anyway. Yep. Uh, he's amazing. Quentin Tarantino. Is this his peak? Now, so let me give you some awards. He's won some Academy Awards as well. He won Best Picture in 2020 for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. He won uh, Best Director for... Actually, the, are these wins or nominees? I don't know. Pulp Fiction. I think, I think it's... Yeah. Anyway, Pulp Fiction in 1995, Inglorious Bastards in 2010, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood in 2020. Sorry, these are all nominees. He didn't win any of these. But he was nominated. <laughs> okay. I don't know what the hell. I'm, okay, let me start over. You want to? You want to cut out my stupidity there, or just leave it in? Cut that. Cut that. Cut that. Le- leave it in. Cut that. Cut that. Yeah, yeah. You, you decide. I'm, you decide. Uh, but I'm just going to start again. Quentin Tarantino is this his peak? It's kind of a little harder. So he's been nominated and won a few Academy Awards. 2020 Best Picture nominee for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Best Director nominee for Pulp Fiction in 95 and Glorious Bastards in 2010 and also Once Upon a Time in Hollywood in 2020. Now, Best Original Screenplay. He's nominated for Inglorious Bastards in, in 2010 and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, but he wins Best Original Screenplay for Pulp Fiction in 95 and also for this. What's his peak? I have an answer, but I, I'm curious what you think it is. Uh, it doesn't just... have to be any of these, by the way. It can be... Yeah. I mean, I don't, we don't have to like... Honestly, sometimes fuck the Academy Awards. Like, I don't necessarily think it needs to be a marker for why it's. But, but I would say, like, as far as critical acclaim, clearly that's important. Yeah. Uh, so, I don't know. It's it's tough because again, you know, he's had so many great ones, but I think that first one where he's changing the way that we get to the history line in *Inglorious Bastards*, I think that's the one for me. Okay. What I will say, though, is that for Peak of the Mountain, as far as his acting role, I think it's Jimmy from Pulp Fiction was his his best little yeah. cameo piece. He's but that. what I didn't realize until afterwards is that he has two cameos in Django. So he plays the Aussie uh, guy at the end. Yep. And he's one of the bagheads. That makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> He's a baghead <laughs> yeah. that was trying to justify, you know, the route forward of, well, maybe this time we go without the bags mm-hmm. and then the next time <laughs> we get them right and then, you know, we have all the regalia and we go in full <laughs> full speed ahead, but it's like that's hilarious that he mm-hmm. played a baghead too. Also not surprising. I think I I would okay, if we're talking like screenplay, like obviously this is it, um maybe Pulp Fiction. I personally think though it's Kill Bill. I'm only saying that because of the amount of money and like like just just box office smash both of those films were. I don't you probably don't remember this. You might be too young, but it was fucking everywhere. I mean, it was like you have to see it. It was so big. Even the the first one, they had already made part two. Basically, chopped it up into two pieces. It's Kill Bill for me. Gotcha. Okay. What about movies about slavery? 
I didn't put I didn't put anything about slavery because there's so many shows. I just, I strictly did movies. So um, I think that it is because of how gratuitous the violence was and how grotesque the violence was in this because he didn't shy away from anything. He mm -hmm. didn't try to put any PC veil over this. It was, there was no, you know, PC veil back in this time frame. So he showed it exactly as it, as it happened. And, you know, some of these other, you know, films and pieces, they kind of curtail around that aspect of it where you see, uh, you know, the maybe you see the reaction of the people that are witnessing this and not the actual action of it happening. But here you are seeing everything as it's happening. I mean, the Mandingo fighting, it's, it's ridiculous. That wasn't part of it. But again, you know, going back to that spaghetti Western piece, it would almost make it so extreme that maybe it did happen. Maybe we, maybe we didn't know that that was like part of it, but he wrote that in and you know, it, it's not that far off. I would be shocked. I wouldn't be shocked if everything that's in this film is, in fact, some partially true. Actual, yeah, factual. Uh, I don't know if it's this movie. I think it's pretty close to this. Twelve Years a Slave also wins the Oscar the next year. Mm -hmm. So it's if it's not this movie, it's within twelve months is the peak of I think, at least definitely in recent times. Uh, anything else you wanted to nominate for peaks? That's all I got. Uh, no, I think that that cool that covers it. Next category: Quoth the Raven. Award favorite quotes. This is not really a quotable film. Like, there are some funny quotes. We've already said a couple, but I'm, I'm saying that there are not. It's not exactly like a like Pulp Fiction. There's tons of like random quotes you can say. Yeah. Um, this one, maybe it's because it's dealing with some little bit. Uh, you know, um, what's the term I'm looking for? It's just dealing with content that's maybe a little bit more difficult to requote. Yeah. <laughs> especially and, and today. You, yeah. I mean there's really ever, but but I mean it's I mean, yeah, it's really it's really tough to yeah. repeat so some of these lines. That piece of it I think is a big indicator of why it's not requotable and you know you yeah. don't have as many quotes from this film as maybe some of the other ones. I mean I do have a couple. Yeah. So one this is King and Schultz or I'm sorry, King Dr. King Schultz and Django. He says uh Schultz says, How do you like the bounty hunting business? And Django says kill white folks and they pay you for it what's not to like like <laughs> <laughs> i like that one a lot yeah. and the other one i laughed at uh was and we already mentioned a couple but tina says this to Django. so you're really free you want to dress like that <laughs> yeah. his outfit is absolutely ridiculous at the end of the movie too. yes yeah that, that yeah so that's what i had for my my two quotes you got any other ones uh i think uh you know again we've we talked about some of these but uh what just made me kind of laugh out loud was when the horse is on top of the slave trader's leg and he's trying to talk to Django, and he's like, "If you could please keep your catawaming to a minimum, that would be great." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's just, it's yep. just so funny. And then he's pleading for his life, and yeah. it's just uh, yeah. that—that's a pretty funny scene. And then what I thought was interesting is that, as uh, which is a, a little bit of a callback to *Inglorious Bastards*, when he's saying, "As for you, poor devils, you have two choices," and he sticks the thumb up and then the index finger, mm. which is how the Germans count, and that was the indicator in you know *Inglorious Bastards*, as everyone knows. Um, but the the counting there, that little reference, that little piece. Um, but then he gives them the choices that you, you you can free your master and continue the way that you came, or kill the man and head for a more enlightened part of the country. It's <laughs> <laughs> yeah. just like such a you know, it's almost again like you forget that maybe they don't have that wherewithal to think that for themselves. So while uh, Schultz 
explaining that to them. Maybe they needed that that explanation that it's okay. You you have a choice here. You can mm-hmm. do either one. And obviously the choice was you know pretty easy for them on which ones they went with. But interesting quote. Uh, yeah. And right. then you're you're one um, in the Daughtry town where <laughs> um, the whole back and forth between him and the marshal or him and the bartender. Mm-hmm. He's like, make sure you get the uh, the sheriff first. And then he brings the sheriff down and shoots him. And he's like, now you may go get the marshal. That's my favorite. That's my favorite <laughs> of the movie. And then he does that whole explanation to the mm-hmm. marshal. And he's like, in other words, you owe me $200. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> That's pretty great. It's just such a great delivery, and nobody else can do it other than than Waltz. Yep. Um, and I think the, uh, the you know that vengeful scene where he comes back and says, you know, I like the way you die, boy. Mm. Going right back to the brutal brother because that foreshadow or that flashback of where he says, you know, I like the way you beg when he's when one of the other brutal brothers is whipping uh, Brumhilda, and it's just again such a painful scene to watch. But then you know you get that whole like. It's just that natural human instinct where you're just like, yes, Django got him. Yeah. There's a lot of that in this. Yeah. But yeah, the marshal and sheriff back and forth, I think, is the best part. Uh, next category, you're canceled. So what will we get rid of? Now, this was made 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. But do you think that if this was made today, could could we, could we could Tarantino make this movie today? I think he just would get... Just 10 years later. I think he would get a lot of backlash for it. But I don't think anything needs to change. I think this film needs to stay the same way because, again, yeah. it's that blinding glimpse of the obvious of this is what happened. There's no, you know, curtailing around this. And I think that it's it's a it's a good reminder so that history doesn't repeat itself of what happened. Not that I enjoyed it seeing that. I'm just saying that that's what that's what happened. And I think, again, you know, he'll get the, the cancel culture will come out and say, oh, you can't do this. You can't do that. But I think Tarantino would... Would have the wherewithal to say, you know, no, it's this story needs to be told. I think it's a little bit easier because it's a period piece. You, you, it's not as it's a little bit more accepted, I guess. But it is kind of well, it's I mean, it's mocking racism big time, which, but all at the same time, like a movie like Tropic Thunder kind of did the same thing, but people just didn't either watch the movie or just saw a couple of screenshots and automatically were like, cancel it. Yeah. When in reality, they're essentially making fun of how ridiculous people that really think this way are. Yeah. And that's kind of what they're doing here. But I, yeah, I, th- I think it would definitely be scrutinized more than it was 10 years ago. Yes. But I agree. It's fucking great. People should watch it. Yes. If you haven't already. If you haven't, you should. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So kind of next category, which is similar to this, but uh, another Spider-Man again. Who would be in this if it was remade today? First of all, the cast, the same cast could be in this again. Yeah. This was made 10 years later. 100%. But, but I wanted to think about maybe what could we do if we updated it slightly with like more popular actors or actresses 10 years in the future. So for Brumhilda, I have a couple nominees. Do you have a couple nominees? I, I have one. Who do you got? Uh, her name is Angelica Ross. So she was from American Horror Story. Okay. And I think that she does such a good job of... Uh, portraying the horror that she's experienced in in that show that I think that she would be a good representation for Broomhilda in what she has to go through. So that was just something from watching that that series that she's one of those characters that every every other season or so she comes back in but some of that like horrific experience acting I think would be good for that. But that yeah. was my nominee for that. I like that. I my some of my nominees were maybe a little bit more like just 
mainstream. Like I got Lupita Nyong'o. Um, actually, my favorite that I have is Zoe Kravitz. Mm. But yeah. th- these are kind of like kind of typical people you would nominate maybe for this role. Yeah. I like Angelica Ross. She looks she could look the part. Uh, all right. So for Calvin Candy for DiCaprio, a little harder. Uh, I've got I've got I've got four here, but I'm really in love with like two of them. So again, I went with the American Horror Story for this okay. one too. Uh, I think Finn Wittock or Wittock, uh, he's been in a couple of different things uh, outside of the American Horror Story. Uh, yeah, he's franchise. in uh, Unbroken. Yeah, uh, but I think he would be a good representation of that Franco-American like style and that quasi, you know, terrible representation. Like I think he could play that pretty well. And the other one would be Evan Peters. Evan Peters, yeah. yeah, yeah, because he, I feel like he's like too too sweet looking, but which maybe what would make it all the more shocking when he comes into a turns into a complete sociopath. But what I go back to is the um, actually uh, it was one of the more recent series, and I'm I'm not just you know on this American Horror Story high house or high horse, if, but if if you've got a, a person from every one uh, for you know every one of these categories from American Horror Story, then maybe you've got a no, I, I don't, okay. I don't, I, I I've I've gone past that, but. <laughs> Peters plays uh, like a 1920s like serial killer in Hotel mm-hmm. in that season. And he has this really like weird way of making you like like him. Well, he did just play Dahmer. It, yes, he did play that as well. But you get that like, I kind of like this character, but then, you know, you, know, you have this like, but I also I, I hate I hate what you're doing. I hate. The, the whole entity of your character. Mm-hmm. So I think he could, and that was early on. So I think after he's done some of these things, I think he could do Calvin Candy pretty well. All right. So here are my nominees. I've got, for someone who could, I think could pull off exactly how Leo pulls it off, I got Dave Franco. Oh, yeah. <laughs> for sure. <laughs> uh, so I like that nominee. I think that if we go in a slightly different, this is like way left field. I, got, I put down Daniel Radcliffe. <laughs> just hear me out. I feel like okay. he is such a very likable, like obviously, like just person, and, and I think he's very not intimidating. Mm-hmm. But I've seen him in a couple of things recently. He can really like turn it on. Where all of a sudden you're like, oh, he can be very intense. My favorite person for this that I wrote down was is Sam Clayton. You know who Sam Clayton is? I don't. He's from Hunger Games. Actually, you watch Peaky Blinders. Yeah. So he's the 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 Nazi in the last two oh. seasons. Okay. Um. I think he's got that perfect like. I'm gonna I'm gonna woo you into liking me, but I could fucking just flip the switch and be a complete and total deranged crazy person. You seem to like Dave Franco the most, though. <laughs> <laughs> I did. I did. That All was right. that was a good one. <laughs> okay. Up next for Steven, um, I've got three nominees here, and the first one for me is a little, little twist. I think Jamie Foxx could pull off this role now, 10 years later. I think so, Steven. too. <laughs> I, I think so, too. I almost put him down, but then I went for like a, a different route where I think Forrest Whitaker could be a good role for this, mm. where he could do it well Yeah, uh, and play that like loyal, like, till I die, like I'm, I'm the, you know, I'm the next guy up. Uh, I think he would be a good portrayal for that, too. I had him and Lawrence Fishburne both as like interchangeable, not interchangeable, but can play that role very similar. I can't think of like Lawrence Fishburne from like Blackish, mm-hmm. like he's like the grandpa. And anyway, I kind of got that same vibe for him. But I, I, you know, I think both those would be good. Forrest Whitaker is a good, good, good answer. All right, now the main characters. Let's go Django first. 
Michael B. Jordan. I, that's that's the answer. <laughs> I have that down too. I, I I did have Donald Glover down as well. Yeah, I think he could probably pull off that role, but I think Michael B. Jordan is very believable in that role. Yeah. Okay. What about uh, Schultz? It was written for. It was for Walt. Um, so Jana, the wife, thinks you and McGregor would be good at this. Uh, yeah. I. She also thought Adam Scott. You know who Adam Scott is. Mm-hmm. Um, my my personal favorite is I got Daniel Brühl. Mm. Yeah, I I had him listed on there, but I was like, no, who, who, <laughs> it's Waltz. Who do you got? Well, no, I'm just saying it, it's Waltz. It has out to be of, Waltz again. Yeah, it has to be Waltz again. That, <laughs> that's there's there's nobody else for it okay. because he he just he it, again you know it's only ten years ago it's not yeah enough time has passed to where he could absolutely do it again. But I like your. Um, uh, David, uh, remind me of his last name. Daniel, Fruel. what? Daniel Brule? Brule. Yeah. I almost yeah. said Brule. I think he can pull it up. I, he, I, he's, he's got the German. Yeah. He's played that role before. I think he'd be very believable as a, he's again, kind of charismatic, funny. Um, I kind of think of his, like his character almost like his, when he's playing Baron Zemo, mm-hmm. like but in the new Captain America show or Winter Soldier, whatever it's called. Yeah. What's it called? Falcon and the Winter Soldier? Yeah. 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 Um, uh, but I, yeah, I mean, but even, even in Inglorious Bastards, you know, he's already part of that, like, Tarantino cast, so it's like it, that works too. I think you, I can, you think you fill in there. <laughs> Next category to stream or not to stream. So is this better as a TV show? What do you think? No, I think it's well. Here's I've got two parts to this answer. I think the film itself, the way that the plot is, it should remain a film. Mm-hmm. However, a spinoff series of Django continuing to do the bounties would be a great series. That's exactly what I put down. I 100% agree with you. I think it'd be, I, I would watch a show about a black bounty hunter pre-Civil War just fucking killing white dudes. Yeah. I think that would be fucking hilarious. Yeah, it would um, be great. But it, had to be, it, would, again, it would have to have that humor in it. It got, got too serious. I don't think I'd be into it. Yeah. The next category, tomorrow is another day. So what happens next? Do they live happily ever after? I, th- I think so. I, I think that they, um, you know, live that quasi sort of normal life in pre and going into civil war i think does he stay in the south does he keep bounty hunting does he head north no i think he heads north and i think uh well happily ever after probably wouldn't happen i think that he would take it upon himself to then join the union army Hmm. i think that that would be the next route for Django to keep fighting for everybody else um and broomhilda would find some way to be a part of that too Hmm. um I guess we're going to see that with the Zorro movie. <laughs> and it happens in the <laughs> comics, too. So that's what's in the future is a Zorro conflict. All right. Next category, we've got our nerd facts. Do you want to start? Uh, yeah. So according to critic Alex Ross, the alliance between Django and Dr. King Schultz is not as absurd as audiences might believe. Because in the 1840s, uh, there were actually a lot of... Um, German revolutionaries and progressives from Europe that flocked to the U.S., uh, where they often became active in anti-slavery movement. So it really even is like a more clear picture of just how messed up it was that we were really alone in what we were doing, uh, that even like these folks from Europe were coming over and saying, this this is messed up. What are you, what are you doing? Yeah. Why are you still? doing this? Still? What the yeah, fuck? Are you still doing this? Like, this is archaic. Yeah. That's why I said I, I would be shocked to learn that if I wouldn't surprise me at all if every element in this film is is slightly based on historical events. Yeah. 
uh, uh, we talked about DiCaprio and his amazing portrayal, but he actually, in that scene where he smashes the glass, he really did smash the glass and, and actually cut his hand and just basically kept acting. So, like, the intensity of it, even, like, kind of the surprise and shock, like, is because it's really that was happening real. in the moment. That's, that was real. That's incredible. That's yeah. incredible. Uh, during the filming of one of the dinner scenes, DiCaprio had to uh, or had to stop because he was having a difficult time using so many racial slurs. And to help him along, our gentle, you know, wise member of the cast, uh, Sam Jackson, comes over, pulls him aside and says, Motherfucker, this is just another Tuesday for us. Which is just so great to hear that, yeah. you know, that was his, you know. But to DiCaprio's point, that was one of probably the hardest characters he's ever had to portray. Yeah. Because it's it's so dark, it's so deep, it's so disgusting that he has to do that, um, that, yeah, every every now and again, you got to tap out and be like, this is too intense. To play a character that is universally hated, not even that character himself, but that person, that person that existed in history, <laughs> yeah. right? And to do it in a way that not only am I okay with it, but I, I'm, I embrace it. I don't think I'm wrong. That's going to be like play some fucked up games on your mental psyche. Yeah, yeah. The This movie holds the all-time record for the most uses of the N-word, or some variation, 116 times. And I think that's also why you can't quote it as as often either, because of how many times it's yeah. thrown in there and, and sprinkled in. 100%. Uh, Will Smith actually was offered the role first and had the chance to play Django, but he turned it down. And it was just that Quentin and I couldn't see eye to eye as Will Smith portrayed it. Uh, he said he wanted to make that movie so badly, but felt that uh, the way that it was, it had to be a love story, not a vengeance story. So he was out. I, and I think wholeheartedly, he the boat uh, wholeheartedly disagree with this being a love story. That's not the point. If it's a love story, it is not as anywhere near as good. They no, made, I think he was saying he would only do it if it was a love story. I know. That's what I'm saying. It, oh, but it, yeah, it, it, it needs to be a vengeance story. Oh, yeah. And that's what makes it so much more powerful. Yeah. They made action figures for this movie. <laughs> I had no idea. <laughs> Believe it or not. This. And, well, obviously, R-rated films at the time were making action figures, but Django's and their themes of slavery and extreme violence obviously was not super well liked. The National Action Network and Project Islamic Hope both boycotted it, uh, condemned them as offensive. Obviously, uh, toys about slavery is not a really great thing. Not and cool. Now they, now they pulled it, but at the time, like actually over a thousand dolls had already been, been sold. So you can find these and they actually auctioned for... Uh, Several hundreds of dollars if you can track one down. Is that something you're proud of, though? If you you do I find don't one know. Of those? I'm not going to display my Django action. <laughs> like I'm not going to be like, hey, I got this action figure. Yeah. Like it's really cool. Like we I don't put know them in that... our Nerds New Cool recording studio. Justin. <laughs> I just like I don't know that I would even be, be <laughs> no, like happy like, to portray that. Who's thinking? Yeah, those would be fun. That'll be a really cool. That'd be so cool for my kid to play kid with. Toys. Yeah. What the fuck? Yikes. Um. Jamie Foxx actually rode his own horse in the movie. Uh, before landing Django, Fox was already an accomplished equestrian rider and owner of several steeds, which was kind of an interesting fact there. Um, and what was kind of funny is that even after an accident in training uh, for Mr. Waltz, uh, he was thrown off of his horse and broke his pelvis, to which Jamie Foxx gave him a gift to make him feel better about riding a horse, which was a saddle with a seatbelt on it. Very, very, very <laughs> nice, but also kind of like a, 
I don't know, kind of like a funny little embarrassing joke, funny thing. Yeah. yeah. So Christoph Waltz, even though this role was written for him, he actually turned it down because he said it was too tailored to his persona, which, yeah, no duh, written for him. <laughs> Tarantino, though, insisted he would not take no for an answer, and Waltz agreed under one condition that his character had to be pure and never once act in a negative or evil manner. And then here's, here's what's funny. Tarantino actually sent him a handwritten letter that simply said, of course, mine hair, which is obviously, uh, you know, going back to um, Inglorious Bastards. Mm-hmm. And Waltz, well, not really, I guess it's really just German. Yeah. Waltz wrote back a telegram and said, mine hair, of course. And CW. There it is. They're in. Uh, Tarantino actually had to cut back on some of the violent scenes. Uh, he's quoted by saying it had to be modulated and it was something that was done through editing. There's a painful section in the movie. It's almost like Django and Schultz going to the gates of hell. So as they're entering Greenville and pretty much until they get to Candyland, there was, there are the three rings of hell that they have to pass through, which was explained in the Broomhilda Siegfried story. Um, and initially the sequence with the Mandingo fight was even stronger than it is now, which is even just mind-boggling I, that they I had don't know how more of that. Even worse. Uh, yeah. But the scenes with the dogs was even tougher. Uh, there's a bunch of different emotions that I'm trying to get into this movie, comedy, action, suspense, and ultimately a big triumph. And when I watched it with an audience, I realized that I had traumatized them too much to go where I needed them to go. It's like I cut their heads off. They grew another one, but they were still a little too traumatized to cheer with the vigor and gusto that I wanted them to. So I had to cut back. <laughs> yeah. It's pretty messed up. Um, the I'm, I'm glad they cut back on that because even like the, the shortened versions are real, real rough to watch. Yeah. I know they're important, but man, rough. The original Django actor, Franco Nero, actually has a cameo. We kind of already talked about his uh, Tarantino's influence and a big fan of the Italian director, uh, Sergio Corbucci. Um, but he brings in Franco Nero. And uh, basically, so in a nod to the original Django and the actor himself, Nero has a brief ca- a cameo. And it's during the bar scene when Django and Schultz first meet Candy. Fox's character drinks and talks with a man. And that man next to him. He says that he basically says, he tells him, my name is Django, the D is silent. And uh, Nero's character replies with, I know, because that was his character's Which name. is, it's just great. It's such a great, even like. It's a fun little thing. Even like with the Star Wars quote, I know. Yeah. It's just like a. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I love that. <laughs> I, I love that. I love you. I know. Yeah. <laughs> the D is silent. I know. It's it's almost symbolic between those two pieces too, yep. which is great. Yeah. Uh, Diving in a little bit further into, again, those spaghetti westerns, uh, Quentin was such a big fan of that, um, that he took a lot of those themes and even portrayed those in and sprinkled them in throughout the movie. So uh, this is kind of uh, Tarantino sprinkling in a little seasoning into the spaghetti western. Right, so his camera shots with the quick jerk-like motions are a direct replica of the infamous spaghetti western shots. So Leone and Corbucci were known um, for doing that all the time, where you have that quick, almost like a small little circle where it comes in and zooms in, and then you get that shot. So we see that shot at the beginning, where you first see, you know, you first hear the Django and the credits roll, or the title sequence comes up. You see it again when you're first introduced to Calvin Candy. Mm -hmm. It almost spins around, and he turns around. He's like. Hello, gentlemen. And then you're just like... It's the famous gif. Pulled in there and you just have that little... <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, in the original Django, the Confederate gang uh, had red hoods on over their head and including red in the film in that subgenre of spaghetti westerns was a sign of good luck. 
Akil used the same style of the hoods, uh, which is where he referenced the um, regulator gang. It's that same bag type with the rope around the neck so it doesn't slide off and you have that whole hilarious exchange. Um, also, a bit of good luck was including a coffin in the Spaghetti Western. So in the original Django, Franco Nero is dragging a coffin into the town as he's coming in. In Django, you see it as Calvin Candy's funeral procession is happening. So you have that good luck aspect into it. Another piece of good luck uh, was incorporating a lot of mud to kind of have that dark, dreary, you know, feeling to it. Uh, but they found that it had a lot of good luck. So you see it in the slave trading city in Mississippi, and you see it in Daughtry. Uh, in when they first have that exchange with the sheriff, there's mud in there when they're first coming into the town, and the smoke is kind of settling in there. We never think of mud as good luck. Yeah, it was, it was, again, this was, these were Italian Westerns, so things may have been a little bit off, but, you know, maybe that's why Tarantino is such a a great guy, because he's he's slightly off a little bit and, you know, can can do the things that he does. Slightly. (laughs) Uh, Again, Corbucci was notorious for giving his protagonist superhuman powers, the fastest hand in the West, etc., you know, takes the power away from them and then makes them face their villain, and that's when they become the hero. Q does this, uh, or Quentin does this when he is uh, with Django, when he's going through and Django's doing the shootout scene, and he's got this, you know, revolver, and he's the fastest hand, uh, but that power is taken away from him when he sees uh, Billy Billy Crash, yeah, Uh, so Walter Goggins uh, has the gun to Bermilda's head, and then he has to give up, so that power is taken away from him, Uh, but then again, he is, he outsmarts the, um, the, fuck. La Kent Mining Company. Is that the name of it? I can't remember it now. I don't remember. Uh, but he outsmarts the group as he's being shipped off there and then comes back and then does it again. So, uh, you know, he, but this time he's using dynamite and, you know, kind of does that whole thing with it. Uh, another piece of the uh, Spaghetti Western was that uh, Corbucci viewed that everybody in the town and everybody in fascist Italy at the time uh, were, were, it was a cesspool of of just this nasty, disgusting de- debauchery that would go on. So that his viewpoint was everybody in the town that went along with the the bad, horrible things that happened in the westerns. They all deserved what they had coming to them. So in Django, you have that with all of the people that were at Candyland at will that um, ultimately suffered the fate of death um, when Django blows up the the entire plantation. Uh, the Corbucci wanted to portray the most grotesque part of his world, which was the fascism and Nazism that was going on in Italy and across Europe. And again, the most grotesque part of America was the antebellum South. And what makes it even more grotesque is that that place actually existed, uh, compared to Corbucci, where he made up his, uh, grotesque scenery in the U.S. Wild West. Um, yeah, you'd have to make a whole lot up for this one. Yeah. Uh, and The Great Silence, uh, that was one of uh, Corbucci's films. It was shot in sub-zero temperatures, had many contrasting scenes with um, the blood being splattered against the pure white snow, so you have that beautiful contrast in the shot. Um, Quentin does that with Django in some snow scenes, as you see um, Waltz and, or, uh, excuse me, Dr. King Schultz and Django riding through uh, the mountains. But then you also see that in that scene where he shoots down the last Brittle, Brittle Brother, against the pure white cotton as the blood uh, splatters across it. It happens a few times, also in the, like the beginning of the film, too, when they're freeing some of the slaves and killing uh, with the... He's got the uh, the, the dentist, dentist car. Yeah. 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. Dennis Carr. I don't know what you call it. But yeah. <laughs> that the thing. cart. Yeah. The, the giant. Yeah. Uh, another little fun fact that uh, I found out was that Minnesota Clay was actually Spaghetti Western title from the 70s, I think, or early late 60s, early 70s. And that was actually the name that was on the saloon that um, Schultz and Django came out of to kill the sheriff and then eventually get the marshal uh, in there. He's and, good at putting those little Easter eggs yeah. in Tarantino. Mm-hmm. And then what I thought was kind of interesting is that the whole premise of Django, the original film, from Corbucci. Um, the premise of it was you had a union soldier that, um, basically got tied up into being brought into this town and he has his companion and they go through. So there were similar, uh, a lot of similarities between the two stories, but they were, they were still slightly different. So there wasn't the love interest piece of that. Um, but in the film, he, uh, Franco Nero is seen at a gravesite with the name Mercedes written across it, but it's never explained. And Quentin believes that that Mercedes was the wife of somebody that he served with in the army, and he was coming down to bring something that that soldier who died in the army, and then found out that she was murdered by this uh, Confederate gang that had basically wiped out the population there, and then another population moved in, and they were coming in to wipe out another population. And I think that's where that inspiration for the Django, on, or excuse me, Django, <laughs> Unchained, comes from. And that kind of piece of it. So, yeah, interesting stuff. Yeah, definitely. Um, Calvin Candy is the only villain Quentin Tarantino actually hates. <laughs> um, so, it, it's interesting. Like, so he, he had a conversation with Playboy, and he said that Candy is the first villain I've ever written that I didn't like. He went on to explain that he basically usually likes his villains because no matter how bad they are, they've got some type of redeeming qualities. But this guy really does not. I mean, he really is just the worst character. So, yeah. Uh, Django's glasses are based on those worn by Charles Bronson. One of the big influences for Django's costume as well was from a painting called the blue boy, which when I say that, you know exactly what scene we're talking about. Uh, the artwork was created by Thomas Gainsborough and inspired the distinctive blue velvet costume that Django chooses for himself. And his sunglasses, meanwhile, are based on ones on the ones worn by Charles Bronson. Uh, character in the fantasy western film The White Buffalo. Inspiration for other costumes came from Blood for a Silver Dollar, Miami Vice, and Kojak. I mean, there are a lot of really bright-ass colors in his outfit and really kind of throughout the movie, too. And what's funny about that, too, is that uh, Tarantino um, had that connection, too, because what Corbucci would do is he would give this sort of panache to his characters and have them wear this like brightly colored thing. This is a direct quote from Tarantino, by the way. He used the word panache a lot. It's not in my vocabulary. Um, but essentially what that means is it would give them this like larger than life appearance. So you see all these bright tr- contrasting colors in the outfits of these like almost, again, comic book characters with their superpowers. And you see that with his blue velvet suit and then when he's wearing the dark burgundy red suit coat right before he starts the second shootout. Hmm. So in the original, this is interesting. So in the original storyline, there was actually like a whole backstory on how Brimhilda ended up in the possession of Candy. Had a character named Scotty Harmony, and basically he lost her in a card game to the villain to Candy. And actually, the character that was supposed to be played by that was Jonah Hill, and also Sasha Baron Cohen were both considered for that part, but they cut it out because it basically didn't help the movie flow very well. So just kind of skipped past that part and said, "Eh, 
She's she's with Candy now. Yeah, now he's back at number two. Yeah, now he's back at number two, exactly. <laughs> uh, Tarantino considers the movie to be a prequel to Shaft. According to Deadline Report, Carrie Washington's character Bromilda bon, uh, Von Shaft, in his mind, is an ancestor of John Shaft, which then prompted Quentin to start singing the theme song out loud. I think that's hilarious. Like when, you, when I read her name, I immediately thought Shaft, and then when I was going, doing some research and that popped up, I'm like, that's fucking hilarious. Yeah. Of course, he would think that. Um, so this was filmed on location in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. Quentin Tarantino actually rented out a local movie theater to show samurai and western movies from his own personal collection to like the the the, uh, um, the whole cast and crew. Yeah. Uh, so again, going back to that sur- surrealistic, uh, dreamlike uh, set, uh, J. Michael Riva. Uh, he was a production designer and art director for three films. He did the original Marvel Iron Man. He did The Color Purple. And his last one, unfortunately, was Django Unchained. He uh, unfortunately passed away before the film uh, completed uh, filming, but he did finish the entire production design uh, in paper and drafted. Hmm. So that whole scene work, uh, he did all of that. So that was just wanted to you know throw a little call out there to something that was... You know, pretty cool to help Tarantino idea come to life for that. A lot of symbolism in this movie. So first of all, Dr. King, he's a dentist, and his mortal enemy is Calvin, Candy, rotten teeth, Candy. Get it? (laughs) Yep. Yep. And Candy's decaying teeth obviously is a symbolism that, uh, well, kind of his his atmosphere, the South, how it is, is not going to be around for much longer after this. And and Civil War starts a couple years later. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, Dr. King also is a symbolism for the good reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, who was also, you know, as we know, not a fan of slavery and a man who ultimately died for the cause, just like Dr. King did in Django. Uh, Candy takes a puff of his cigarette throughout every scene that he's in, uh, which is symbolism uh, that we we think uh, for uh, to symbolize him being the dragon from one of the levels of hell from the Broomhilda story. It's kind of fun. Uh, the man being torn to pieces by the dogs of hell uh, is another symbol for the story of the you know three levels of hell as he's going through all of that. You're seeing the grotesqueness that's going on as they're coming into Candyland. Uh, riding through Daughtry, there is a shot uh, with, a, with a camera, not, not the gun type, uh, <laughs> of Django's head passing directly through a noose symbolizing what probably would happen to him if Dr. Schultz wasn't accompanying him through the town. Uh, because again, as he's walking through the town, everybody is staring at him. and uh, Everybody has that same thought of they've never seen that type of man on a horse before. And then he directly says that too, which is hilarious. Uh, another piece uh, that was uh, kind of encompassing symbolism was white cake. White cake was thrown around a lot. Uh, Calvin Candy wanted to have his cake and eat it too. Uh, but what is white cake? It's a towering cake that would be sliced to be served as a peace offering. And even like in the film, your guest professes not to have a sweet tooth, as he's a dentist, as we all know. Uh, but it's a dessert as pure as driven snow, with vanilla cake as lily white as the slave owner, Big Daddy's Palms, and a filling as cheesy as Tarantino's attempt at an Australian accent. <laughs> Uh, and then the last uh, are a couple more pieces of symbolism here. The dark burgundy red for Calvin Candy, his dark red wardrobe, all symbolism for the devil and the dragon in the Romhilda story. His study is even almost completely black from how dark the burgundy colors are incorporated there. 
And then again, the blood splattered on the cotton symbolism for the bloodshed from slavery and the horror that occurred at that time frame. How much of this symbolism stuff do you think Tarantino really thinks about before he's making it? You think all of it? Part of it? Uh, I think about 75% of it he's actually throwing in there um, and knows what he's doing. But I think there's also a lot that he just leaves open for interpretation. Which I, you know, that's that's the beautiful thing about film and why it's considered art is that once you put it out there, anybody can interpret anything out of it. Yeah. Okay. So kind of fun. Just curious. Uh, what you thought? <laughs> yeah. Uh, and another little bit of information that I found out after I watched the film is that there is actually a real life Django. Um, this was, you know, a lot of folks may not have known about this. I didn't know about this, but uh, the man's name was uh, Bass or Bass Reeves. And he He's was fucking a badass. He was a total badass. <laughs> he uh, was a U.S. Marshal uh, in 1875. He became that at the age of 38. And during his 32-year career as a deputy marshal, he was responsible for arresting 3,000 felons and killing 14 men without being shot at once. Yeah, he's he's often considered the well, number one, the most overlooked bounty hunter of all time, mm-hmm. but. Uh, also, like the best bounty hunter of all time. Yeah, I mean that's that's like a perfect record. There are some incredible documentaries about Bass Reeves online. That if you don't have the chance to watch anything else, look up Bass Reeves and watch some stuff. It's like super interesting. Um, all right, kind of the last cat, second last category: inner nerd thoughts. So, did we learn anything? Anything that came up as we were going along that you thought was uh, you wanted to mention? I only got a couple. Number one, I just want to reiterate how much I love the theme song. We talked about where it came from. I really enjoyed it again. I also really love that they call Kerry Washington Hildy, as that is also a common nickname that I've been called in my in my in my time. You can uh, you can really uh, uh, connect with that. I connected with that. I yeah. can't relate. I can connect. Yeah, that's I was I was trying, trying to think of a different word besides relate. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> you kind of mentioned Tarantino, and I just want to reiterate that his accent, his Australian accent, is fucking brutal. <laughs> <laughs> so, but it was rough to listen to. I'm like, is he doing this? purposefully like almost out of a fucking like uh like a foster's commercial like it's almost it's so bad it was almost like let's let's find someone i I don't want to keep sorry to keep harping it but it was let's let's have someone do an australian accent that is intentionally doing a bad australian accent to make fun of australian accents (laughs) like it was i don't know what he was doing there yeah uh the last thing i had was that the only thing that dragged out in the entire movie is the ending. I feel like it just takes a long time to finally end. Like it could have ended a few times. <laughs> and then yeah. came, and there's another scene and another scene. I'm glad they're wrapping up all, you know, all the storylines, but I was kind of like, all right, let's just, you know, roll the fucking credits, right? The movie's over. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so yeah, no, I, I think for me, like just kind of, uh, it, it wasn't so much a learning from it, but it was a good representation of, you know, what, what one man can be capable of. Uh, from both Calvin Candy's perspective and Django's perspective, and even Schultz's perspective. I mean, what one man can accomplish when they set their mind to it um, and being determined to do something and, you know, have that kind of process and that thought process throughout their entire life. Uh, just a good representation of that. But, mm-hmm. yeah. Well, what was the impact on this final category? They had a budget of $100 million, which is his most expensive movie to date. That's a lot of money, but it had a gross worldwide of $426 million. So <laughs> I guess they uh, made their money back. This was shot in 130 days 
which is his largest shooting schedule for a single film. That's a lot. I mean, that's what a third of a year. Yeah, that's, that's no, that's no joke. That's a long time. Some awards we already mentioned that Christoph Waltz won Best Supporting, Tarantino won Best Original Screenplay. It was also nominee, nominated for Best Picture of the Year for Cinematography and for Sound Editing. So overall, what are your kind of final thoughts about Django Unchained? I think it's a phenomenal film and a great modern-day representation of the subgenre of Westerns. I myself am a fan of the, you know, the the American Westerns anyway. So like, you know, you've got the old, all those old films that, you know, there's still a lot of great pieces that still hold, hold up today. They still hold their weight today. Mm -hmm. And to see a film come out just 10 years ago and still have a lot of those same themes to it, uh, I think is great. So I, I, I give this one a, an A plus. It's, it's a great film. If you like Westerns, if you like spaghetti Westerns and you like Tarantino, uh, this is the perfect kind of, it just melded together and just an, an amazing story and some really funny moments, some brutal moments, but uh, obviously with all the awards and the critical acclaim and just the audience acclaim, go check this out ASAP if you haven't already. All right, let's wrap it up. Nerd Outreach. First of all, thank yous. Got to thank you, Brandon, for coming here today. Thank you for having me. This really appreciate it. Fun. Thanks to our... Uh, executive producer our man about town uh kind of behind the scenes there on this cold winter day that's in november thanks for everything uh we love all of our listeners so please continue to share rate etc jump on all the socials you can email us any show show suggestions if you ever have them uh, we also have some video podcasts that come out from time to time so check out our youtube channel next episode we're going to get into one of the uh most critically acclaimed movies of all time et the extraterrestrial it's a 40th anniversary. What do you think about that movie? Uh, that I didn't realize it was turning 40. That's incredible. But uh, yeah. it's, it's a great movie. It, yeah. It's it's, it's good natured and lighthearted, and the premise of it is. I mean, looking at it now, it's it's kind of almost comical to see like what the effects were. But at the time, that was groundbreaking. Yeah, it's so. a great story. So uh, check that out. Next episode coming up here. Once again, Brandon, thanks for joining us, and hopefully, you come back again sometime soon. Definitely. Thank you. All right. Until next time. Bye, everybody. Bye. What? We'll get to that. Okay. All right. <laughs> uh, all right. We're ready? I think we are. Uh, yeah, we're up and running. Okay. Here we go. You uppity son of a... <laughs> Django Unchained coming up next. <laughs> all right shit fuck <laughs> sorry is that is that the i can't hear fucking shit out of this thing is that is that the i think you got your cut, I think I just got the cut. you got your your yeah. extended fucking scene god damn it all right here we go